Hi, I'm Anna-Claire Harper, and you're listening to The Return, property and investment podcast, sharing insights and information on key topics from real estate technology to sustainability. Feel free to get in touch or follow recent news by connecting on LinkedIn, Anna-Claire Harper. It is the first of series three, which is very exciting in itself, and even more, <laughs> even more exciting. I'm joined by John Corey, who regular listeners may know from appearing in this podcast before. He has his own following from his real estate meetup and a huge level of experience in the UK property sector, as well as internationally. So, John... What I wanted to do with this episode was talk to why the themes of strategy, innovation and value are so relevant for potential investors. But first, it might be helpful if people know a little bit about you and how we uh, met. So yeah, who are you? What do you do? So John Corey, and because this is a podcast and most of you won't be watching the live recording, um, I'm a little older, I have gray hair, as people might have seen if they saw the images. I come from the U.S. In fact, right now I'm sitting in the U.S., but that's sort of a temporary thing. So I grew up in the East Coast in Massachusetts, got a, ended up with a degree in computer science and moved to Silicon Valley. And that was the early days of Silicon Valley, relatively early at least. And about 18 months after arriving in Silicon Valley, I started investing in real estate. So I bought a house in San Jose, then bought a second one, did some other things over the years. Over some period of time, I moved on from Hewlett Packard to Next Computer, spent some time working for Steve Jobs there, ran into another guy that later founds LinkedIn who had worked on a project I was on. So essentially the right age group, as I said to someone this past Saturday, the right age group to be involved with certain projects that did things that people now know about. In fact, one of them was uh, Bill's software that caused Tim to invent the web. So you know, it, it's just almost an accident. But that's the background. I come from a, a tech background and property background, California style. Moved to London to work at Swiss Bank Corporation. And that's what got me over to the UK. And these days, I like to say I have property from Hawaii to Bradford. And for the international people, well, everybody in the UK will know where Bradford is. And they all then say, why Bradford? Because they get Hawaii. When I say that phrase, Hawaii to Bradford in the US, people don't understand Bradford. So I say Hawaii to London and it sort of resonates. But that's the real fast overview. Perfect. So from that, it's very clear that you've got a good level of tech knowledge and innovation knowledge. And my other two themes were value and strategy. You and I first met when I was probably 22 or 23 at your property meet. Um, yeah, you had no idea how, <laughs> how young I was. I um, know you showed up at a, it was at the London South Bank University when we were temporarily using the facility there. Exactly. And since then, I guess we've had ongoing conversations around strategy, both mine and also other people's. And I think that's been uh, really important and really valuable for me. So I think you are a good person to talk about that and innovation. And one of the key themes that is always coming up in our conversations is value. So I know that you're well qualified to talk about that. So that's why you're here. Um, strategy, innovation and value. Let's start with strategy. Do you agree that strategy has never been more important than in 
the context we find ourselves in, which I've covered extensively in the last series of the podcast, but it's a fast changing and more challenging and slightly uncertain market. Um, so do you agree? So, you know, I don't know where you want to go with this per se. So I'm going to define it this way, that strategy is having a sense of which direction you're trying to head in mm -hmm. and thinking at a higher level. So in a world, as you were saying, a fast change and rapid sort of things popping up, you need to know what your strategy is from the point of view of what direction. Are you going north? Are you going south? Now, there's an element, and this is where you could get into semantics. It depends on whether you have a strategy that's dependent on the current circumstances or a strategy that is sort of agnostic to the current circumstances. And the key, I think, is you're going to have to be nimble and three years ago, about three years now, the Brexit vote happened. There is very, very few people, including the people that wanted to see Britain leave, who said that the vote was going to succeed. Now, it's taken longer than people expected to get to where we are now. It's going to take longer than anybody's expected to get to where we need to be. But the fact that things change in one vote and the currency drop by 20% the next day, these are a little bit hard to plan in. They're a bit like black swans and that you should assume that stuff can change, but at the same time, how flexible is your strategy? How sensitive is it? What is your buffer to these unexpected turbulences? I think we'll see more convergence between technology and real estate, but real estate as an investment sector is a very slow adopter. So the tenants are more tech savvy than the landlords generally. <laughs> yeah, I'd agree with that. Or, like you just said, if you have a strategy that is maybe slow and steady and a bit boring, but that lasts through changes, whether they're... Yeah, in fact, I don't, I don't even think boring is a, a useful value for evaluating a strategy. I think it's more about consistency and will you get to where you want to get to. Whether it's boring and exciting is almost irrelevant. Uh, maybe it affects people's motivation, but... They shouldn't be picking their future based on this business adventure is more exciting than that one because if it's going to fail a horror and crash and be a horrible death or something that's more exciting but it doesn't get you where you want to go mm -hmm. well i agree with you completely although i would say that in my experience a lot of investors especially private investors individuals had tended in the past towards a slight element of emotional decision-making rather than strategic oh, oh, decision-making. Yes, yes, I completely agree. And I think that's why some of them don't have very much money now. Well, I think that's exactly my point with the strategy. So you played right into my hand, which is, I guess over the last 20 years, property has outperformed so many alternatives and especially the alternatives that are available to ordinary private investors, so individuals or families or small groups who aren't necessarily in the sector but do have access to it because property has been a very accessible asset. And a lot of the time there's been an element of luck, there's been an element of, oh well to be honest property always goes up so you know a soft market actually hides a lot of mistakes and you can afford to make a lot of mistakes while all property prices are, feel like they're uniformly going up. And actually that's not the case anymore. And I would argue that you mentioning Brexit so early is both painful and unfortunate. No, it's it's extremely relevant in the sense that it is affecting confidence, but I 
controversially don't believe that Brexit is really structurally affecting the property market. I think it's massively exaggerating things that are caused by other more structural changes, for example, regulatory changes that have affected what works for particular types of investors, specifically private investors in relation to companies, and also broader demographic changes and affordability changes, which have fundamentally and will continue to fundamentally affect demand and people's ability to pay. And I think those trends are more appropriately labelled as the cause of what we're in at the moment, which feels like a very challenging market. And actually, Brexit is just exaggerating all of that. Yeah, it may be acting like a force multiplier. It also becomes part of the conversation. So some people will actually take action or refuse to take action because of this perception. This is the same with emotional decision making that fundamentally we're all emotional. And then we look for justifications for our decisions. So we're not actually as rational as we like to believe. Behavioral economics makes that case that you know, essentially you can get a lot of people doing the same thing for a bad reason, but they will continue to do it for quite some time. I'll let that sink in. Okay, so whether you're following... Actually, a different way to say it is, um, this is from Wall Street, the market has more ability to be wrong longer then you have the ability to be right. So when the point is, don't bet against the market and think you can wait it out. The market can be very wrong for a long period of time and you can get wiped out at that time. So a strategy that accounts for what other people are doing without trying to overthink it is probably a good way to think of it. So I suppose what we're both saying is strategy is incredibly important in this environment. Whether you do have a flexible, nimble strategy or you are aiming to have, or whether you take a longer term view. And I guess for a minute, it's probably worth me touching on, since we started speaking, how my approach has changed in response to that, sort of moving towards the slower, steadier approach. So when we first met, and then in the years after that, I was looking at investing, but adding value through development, and then running an investment and development company. And that was all sort of predicated on buying, adding value and selling. And actually, I took the view last year that it really wasn't the right market for that and that that strategy needed to change. And the strategy now really is about scaling something that lasts and lasts a lifetime and builds a legacy and preserves and grows wealth, which I would say the strategy is very defensive because the types of tenants who are ultimately the consumer and who are paying the rent are specifically fairly unlikely to change much as a result of Brexit or future possible changes in the market, other than rent controls, which terrifies everyone. So in terms of strategy, I know I have changed and I think there's other big changes sort of more broadly in the market from often shorter term, often more emotional and less strategic to more strategic, more long term, whether it's changing from development to build to rent or I think people assuming they're going to be holding things for a little longer at the end of the development. Are you seeing anything specific around strategy in this context that you think is worth pulling out and highlighting? So more from my point of view and less 
to the market. So I've been a buy and hold sort of person. I'm a little too lazy to want to run a building site or get involved at that end of it. I'd rather buy it after it's built, maybe buy it early as part of the early sales, but I'm not the type of person who takes joy from running a development site. Development is a fine business and people can make very good money. The problem is the fact that you tend to finish with a bunch of units and then you have to liquidate them and you have a sort of short window. And the reason it's a short window is because you borrowed money. And so therefore you have this time limited loan. You have the maximum amount of the loan is going to be pretty much when the units are all finishing. And if you come to market just when the market stalled, you know, you're in a bit of hurt. And technically the loan is set up so that you have to pay it back. You can't just decide to rent the units. That's not a condition of the loan in most construction. So you're now under this almost artificial time pressure. And as one other person who's quite bright said, if you think, oh, your plan B is going to be renting the units, well, classically, that means you have to refinance a loan to a loan product that's appropriate for renting the units. And the value of the properties are probably going to be a bit lower than you were thinking, which is partially why you couldn't sell them. So you may not be able to refinance out what you need to refinance out to be able to then hold it. So it's a, it's a tough um, business because you get these periods, uh, just say a drought, where you can't really get the units sold, you can't really get the units refinanced. So now you're under all this financial pressure. Uh, an alternative to that is just don't use debt, then you have more room. So anything you can do to extend the exit is better. Anything that you can do to allow you to pick when you might exit, because eventually we're all going to exit, even if it's just dying. But we're all going to sort of reach some point where it makes sense for someone to sell the units. So you want to retain your leverage or retain your control, not leverage as in debt, but your ability to choose when you're going to exit. And in the current market, yes, you're right. People are still going to need somewhere to live, even in the crunch. So 2007, 2008, unemployment hit whatever it hit. And depending on where you are, maybe it hit 10%, maybe it hit a little less, than, maybe it hit a little bit more. Well, let's say it was 10%. That means nine out of 10 people still had to get their bums out of their bed and get to work, okay? So 90% were working and 10% worked. And while that's a little bit simplified and people argue that, well, there's some people that didn't show up in the data, the point is, for the most part, the economy ticked over, for the most part, things ticked over. So your job as an investor, rather than just as a developer, is to be able to set your prices lower than the competition, to not have the financial pressure, to play the long game because you, you really do quite well if you can play the long game. Effectively, inflation is designed in, therefore the asset values are going to be worth more in the future because the currency is worth less. It's literally the currency is going down. And in the meantime, someone else is going to pay all your running costs if you give them the ability to have a roof over their head. Mm -hmm. So get time on your side. If you're going to play the development game, be cash, basically very little debt. Mm -hmm. Don't assume you're going to maximize leverage and maximize returns. And it, it, what I'm getting from you really is that strategies in this market must be sensitive to risk and whether it's leverage or whether it's the location so that you know you can or you can feel more confident of a refinance as an exit and you have that multiple exit. Well, I'm partially trying to say that was you said strategy in this market. I'm trying to say 
be very aware of strategies that work across multiple different market conditions. Mm-hmm. So it's not a strategy per market. Oh, I agree. You will not, you're not going to get a heads up that we're changing market conditions, so therefore change strategy. You're going to have to, oh, oops, I'm already in the new market and I'm not in the new strategy yet. Well, I completely agree. And I think a big part of it is where things were very, very good for a lot of people without too much effort before, there's almost an assumption that it'll always be good at that point. And um, investing in things, investing in things in a way can be, it can be a blessing and a curse that individual investors and private investors who don't have a lot of experience get into the market. Because of course, we all start with not very much experience, but where you go and invest money in stocks and shares, you have to go through a whole rigmarole and read disclaimers around the risks that returns may not actualize. And there's all sorts of process and information for you around what might happen in the worst case. Whereas you go and buy a terrace property, whether it's in your own name, if you want to go down that route, which isn't really advised at the moment, or in a company name, there's no risk warning on a terrace property that you buy or a flat that you buy from a new build scheme. So I guess that is a problem that a lot of people don't actually know about the risks that they're taking on with the strategy that they've got. I also agree with you that a strategy that works in any market is really the ideal and that that has to be, in my opinion, focused on the next main theme, which is value and By value, I guess you can look at the RICS definition, which is basically around seeing property as something that's available in the market. So what one would buy or sell in an arm's length transaction, which means there's a bit of distance between the buyer and seller. No one's forcing anyone and there's time to negotiate. No vested interest, yes. And it's not just that, in my opinion. I think that looking for value is more closely aligned with the Warren Buffett approach of value investing. So looking for stuff that's perhaps undervalued at the moment, but that holds such significant value, whether it's a utility or whether it's the kind of property that anyone can afford and everyone will always want to live in, that stands the test of time for a lot of people and has a stable income stream that will go on and you would be happy to hold forever. And I think that is a key area of value is looking for what those kind of assets are that you can invest in in, in the UK property market as a well, key part of the strategy. An example of um, value. So it depends sometimes on what you value. I had a tenant in a property. It was in London, and they they or other basically changed slightly over the years, but essentially someone related to the original tenant had been in the property for 10 years. So, you know, it was like two roommates and one left and another one came in, but we had this constant occupancy for 10 years. And the person was now losing their roommate. They had a good job, but they were expecting to move back to their home country in a couple of years. And they thought they'd move to a different part of London for the next two years. Perfectly fine. I actually had a chat with them about it. I suggest someone that had a property in that direction. But part of the conversation revolved around, so what is your budget? What are you expecting to pay? Mm-hmm. And what they wanted to pay was actually less than what the unit was renting for, uh, the one they were exiting, the one I owned. So as it turns out, after we had talked, I then reached out to an agent and found out what the market was. And essentially, if I was going to re-rent it, I would pay what this person was allocating as their budget to go look at this other neighborhood. 
So I get back in touch with what was at the time my current tenant. And I said, look, you want to move, you had a budget of this, you're looking at a different area, you're planning and staying for approximately two years. Well, it turns out that I'm going to have to rerun the property. That's fine. You know, if you want to live somewhere else, that's great. But I'm only going to get paid pretty much what you were thinking. So if you want to stay, I'll drop the rent to the amount that you're targeting because that is the market rent. Essentially, rents have got soft a little. So you could save the cost of moving. You could save the cost of all the change in the house, will change your address, and you know, spend the money traveling to the other neighborhoods rather than move to one of the other neighborhoods. Turns out they decided to stay. They stayed another two years. It was all great. I didn't have any refurbishment costs. Didn't have to do painting and decorating. Didn't have to pay to find a tenant. Didn't have to pay a fee to an agent to do any of that work. Didn't have to pay advertising costs or dealt with it directly. So for a reduction in rent, I saved a bunch of money. And it works out that what I would have lost and all those fees covered the reduction. Now, unbeknownst to me, completely independent, a few months later, the Bank of England drops interest rates quite a bit. So my unit's still cash flowing. In fact, it's cash flowing better than it was, even though I'm collecting less rent. But net effect to me was, it was a personal reason they were gonna move on. And I turned it into something where they were happy, I was happy, and I still was better off than if they had moved. And I think that illustrates a really good point, which is that understanding value in the property sector is about understanding who the customer is and what they want. And your customer as an investor is the tenant, whether it's commercial property or residential property. And actually, historically, I know certainly in the more corporate sides of the industry, there is, and in the commercial sector, there's more of an emphasis on describing the occupier. It's not yet that common to talk about the consumer. And I think build to rent schemes to an extent of really understanding the value that they have to offer consumers, tenants. Well, this is a very UK conversation. So if you were having this conversation in the US, the large operators definitely understand taking care of the customer mm. matters. Uh, the the build to rent sector started long before I was born in the US, where it's only just starting in the UK. So the whole legacy of treating your tenants as your best customers, as your, in a sense, your frequent flyers, get them upgrades, get the bonuses, you know, wow them with your service rather than treat them like your worst enemy. They're paying the bills and there's, you know, they need to be respectful in reverse. But if you look at an airline as an example, they have frequent flyer programs for a reason. Another quick story on value. This is quite funny. So, and, and I'll call this person, John. So John had done some things in the tech sector, made some money. So he then decided to park that money or buy investing in some property and he bought a particular property and not too far from where you might know and this tenant they were consistently paying two weeks late and they had been there like a year and for the whole time they had consistently paid two weeks late they had a job they just paid two weeks late and i immediately thought of something and john hadn't thought of it so he was going to give them a section 21 notice at the end of the one year tenancy and get a new tenant and I said, okay, well, let's take us, let's go through the math here. First of all, they're consistently paying two weeks late. I think they're even paying a late fee. I go, why do you think that is? And he goes, well, I don't know. I go, well, what's their job? And he tells me, and I go, and when do you think they get paid? He goes, actually, I don't know. But now that you bring it up, I suspect it's close to when they pay the rent. I go, really? So if you move the date with their agreement, I bet they'd be on time because they're it's very clear they're paying at a certain date. That's probably when they get paid. So second of all, he said, well, 
you know, if I move them out, then, you know, I can get a new tenant and it pays on time. I go, yeah, yeah. But that I think is a red herring. He's going to have to do some repair work. There's some minor stuff, little decorating touch up, you know, so he's going to have loss of rent while the work's being done. He's going to have the letting fee. He's going to get somebody in who is not necessarily known to him and therefore doesn't have a track record of consistent payment to him as opposed to the tenant he has. So we go through the math and it works out. It's going to cost them almost three months rent to get a tenant in who might pay two weeks different than the tenant he has. I said, do you understand how expensive that is? You could reduce the rent by 25% and you'd still be better off. He goes, oh, so what I should do is send the tenant and their partner to Australia for a week as a gift and keep the tenant. I go, well, I don't know whether you want to give them that type of bonus, but the idea that you're now starting to understand how valuable they are in situ rather than going through all the hassle getting a new tenant, agree to move the date with them and you'll be happy because the interest of two weeks rent in a bank account for two weeks over a year is like almost zero. Mm -hmm. And you're going to spend three months worth of rent so you can get almost zero better off. It's like, really? It's not the same as price, right? <laughs> price exactly. is what you pay, value is what you get. <laughs> and you understand how value is created in a transaction. And if you're a developer, you create it one way. If you're a landlord, you create it another way. Well, Tenants create value by just doing what they say. And I mean, I guess the theory really is that you get value from solving a problem, whether it is developing at a time when more housing is badly needed in an area or and will be bought, <laughs> or whether it's solving your tenant's time-based cash flow problem and you get value through development if you develop the right product. Mm. So if you're developing one million pound, one bedroom swish flat, when they need is three bedroom houses, yeah. at, you know, 500,000, you're going to struggle to sell the premium stuff where you might've been able to sell as many as you can build the, the, the homes if that's what that area needs. And the local planning documents will tell you what the area needs. And I guess the reality is stuff is still changing and it's going to continue to change around that. For example, more families are renting longer and are happy to, but they do potentially want longer term tenancies. And it's little changes like that, that if you can understand your local market can be very beneficial to, in, in terms of adding value to your strategy, right? I'll give you another example where um, I have a tenant who was, they're not sure what's going to happen to their visa in a number of months. So they wanted to get a shorter term AST. And I said that actually the best solution is we do a periodic tenancy and you just stay there. We don't have to go through any vetting process or anything else. You're the existing tenant. And when you know what's happening with your visa, whether it's five, six, seven, eight months, I don't actually care. You just let me know. The notice period's the same as it would have been pretty much if you had done a six month one but now you don't have to worry about when that six month ends versus when you find out about your visa. It's like, continue to pay the rent, continue to do what you're doing, you know, everybody's cool. So we can, the two sides can create value by coming to a mutual understanding that works for both sides. That's mm -hmm. value. Yeah. So we have um, one more theme to discuss, which is innovation. And I mean, as you mentioned earlier, you're a bit of a tech genius. I'm absolutely not, but as you also mentioned, there's a lot of the UK property sector that is firstly behind other countries like the US and secondly behind where it could be. 
there's a huge amount of stuff going on, whether it's technology or just more innovative thinking and shaking things up a bit that can add value and that can help people to, I guess, capture their own value, whether they're an investor or even whether they're a tenant or a home buyer, I guess. So firstly, innovation in the UK property sector. Why is it so important right now? Well, sticking with your value theme when it comes to the innovation, innovation for innovation's sake really works. So if we're going to get technology change, it has to add value. So as an example, open rent and other services that make it easier for landlords and tenants to sort of connect and get exposure. So if I pay for a listing and open rent, it'll show up and write with a bunch of other things. As long as I'm willing to do the viewings, I don't need an agent to do it. So you don't necessarily have to hire a letting agent because you can reach out into the market. So that's an innovation that benefits the landlord. How does it benefit the tenant? Well, it has to be an easier process. It has to be more streamlined. It has to give the tenant sort of competitive advantage when it comes to finding stuff that goes on the market. There are other things, that, whether they're payment services or stuff. Then there's stuff that's like, okay, it's cute, it's nice, but it doesn't add any value. Mm-hmm. Not to the people that are involved in the transaction. There's one that might be interesting. Uh, it hasn't taken off yet, but if a tenant could carry their almost like their passport or their their record of payments. So instead of a credit reference, they would have a landlord reference that is the composite of all the payments they've made. So there's no dispute. If they paid on time, they didn't pay on time, they paid this amount or that amount, that is just somehow portable. So the next tenant or landlord rather can see it. And where this could benefit a lot of people is in the public sector where people are in social housing they want to move to a different place and the place they want to move to is privately rented but they don't have any track record through a credit bureau well yeah less interested in your credit score and more interested in have you been paying the rent as agreed and anything that helps people validate that and prove this is me this is how i pay the rent this is how i prioritize my life therefore landlords can work with that and Almost by definition, landlords are dealing with people who are less credit worthy than owner occupiers, because to some degree, if you were able to qualify for loan, in many cases, you would. So it's sort of natural that you're going to end up with people who don't have established income, went through a divorce. There's some other events that like they can pay their rent on time, but they're not going to have a perfect credit score for a loan. So that's the market a lot of landlords serve. I would say it's the biggest part of the market. And anything that helps a landlord get their head around, has this been a reliable tenant? Do they take care of the place? Do they sort of maintain it or keep it clean or take the trash out and put it where it belongs in the bin? Any of those things that just give people more confidence that, you know, you sound great. Why don't you hear the keys, pay the money, you can move in. Well, it goes both ways, right? People behave better when they know they're being watched too. Um... There is an element to that. And, And there's also people will intentionally try to maximize their score by doing the things that help their score. So this gives them an opportunity to build that track record. I'm not saying it'll take off necessarily, but that'd be an area where I could see value for the tenants, mm-hmm. gives them flexibility, gives them yeah. portability. I can see value for the landlords. Most landlords have no interest in tenants moving on. They'd rather keep the tenants they have as long as they're paying on time. Everything you've said so far is playing to a very, very important point, which is that the best and most relevant and most valuable innovation is all about solving problems, whether it's friction 
for tenants moving house or whether it's buying and selling friction or investing friction. So anywhere where there's a transaction, there's friction in the UK property market at the moment because it's by its nature, it's a very imperfect market. You know, properties are not the same and they're not liquid. And it's very difficult to even understand the value, hence why we need qualified surveyors who even then sometimes come out with different results for exactly the same inputs. So it's a hugely imperfect market. yeah. You're a professional in your academic training in this field. And it's, I think in the Rick's manual, it talks about plus or minus 10% yeah. is considered accurate. And I'm fine with that. I'm not di- disputing. And the reason is every property is different, as you said. Mm. There's, there's no other property at that address. There's no other property that's exactly like that one. So plus or minus 10%, that's a really big swing. And I think a lot of the things that are happening, whether they're small marginal changes that people can access at a very low cost, like you just said, open rent, but there's a whole load of amazingly exciting prop tech startups who are or are about to make what they do available at little or no cost. They're basically charging very little and there's a huge positive externality to a lot of these innovations because the way the tech industry works is often on the basis of that and it creates a huge amount of value has the scope to create a huge amount of value by solving problems bringing two people together for example an investor and a tenant and improving access to opportunities finding each other to be a tenant like exactly connecting them up the access to one another access to different resources and also information i think there is a huge amount of information available and whilst that can occasionally be a little overwhelming because not everything you read on the internet is true there is amazing power in that i know every donald trump tweet is not true well (laughs) well um let's not go down that route so Okay, so I think we're on the same page around innovation and we are playing catch up in terms of... One of the things I've noticed in some of the prop tech companies that I've either spent time looking at or people want to be advised on, I know one was trying to solve the ownership issue, but they didn't really understand how ownership works. How do you actually buy a property? And they thought they could do this sort of fancy matching. I go, well, there's a problem with the mortgage that might be in place. There's a problem with the tax implications. You know, there's so many ways that this was a problem. Now, I'm not saying that you can't fix many of those. Uh, That is how change happens. But you really have to get pretty deep with how is it today? And why did it evolve that way? It isn't like the evil people designed it to keep the little man out. It's no, it evolved that way for a reason. And we talk about fewer people get on the property ladder. Well, that's a bit of sort of journalistic bullshit. So when the queen took the throne in 53 or 54, wherever it was, 70% of the UK rented. We are still not at that level. So if we go back to the norm, does that mean we go back to 70% rented, 30% ownership? Okay. We're not even close to that. We're not, that would be a crisis in most people's minds. Mm -hmm. Yet it was considered normal in the 50s. Why did that change? Well, some people would argue women started working more to to income families. Some would say commercial banks could now lend money for houses because before that they were legally restricted. They couldn't do it. Only building societies could. 
So there's lots of structural change that happened that drove up the ownership levels. Whether any of those structural changes are needed or, or will happen again, that triggers innovation. So some of these tech things are not gonna really fix the underlying problem. They're just putting different icing on top of the bad cake. It's interesting what you say about advising prop tech companies, because as you know, that's something I've been doing as well with bringing the property and investment angle to a prop tech company, which I suppose it is something that is very needed if they are to solve the problems that they're setting out. And like you say, you need that sector lens because it's not all about fancy ideas and big planets behind you and big stars <laughs> as you have now, but about really understanding those problems. And actually the UK property market remains so complicated and so unique. And in some respects, there's a vested interest to keep it that way because there's a lot of people who sort of preserve and grow their wealth via it being quite opaque. But actually, well, I say this is where I don't being maybe more Californian in my thinking. I don't believe that vested interests actually think that much. I think it works. Why should I change? And I relatives who are quite successful and happy, but they're not good at innovation. You know, they couldn't think up a new way of doing something, but they'll keep doing what has already worked and they get paid well for that. So it's not like someone who's in this cabal has decided to keep the little people out. It's more that this is just how we're all set up. The mortgage brokers, everybody else, they show up, they do the thing, they go home, they're, they're mildly happy or whatever. And that continues. And to create disruptive change, Steve Jobs has a quote from when he's introducing the iPhone. You have to be 10 times better to get people to be interested. Doesn't mean that one time better, two time better, three time better is bad. It just means unless it's significantly better, people just aren't that interested in switching. I like that idea. Yeah, I'm sure it's true as well. Okay, I think we're getting to the end of our time slot. So we don't want to talk too long because people might tune out. They might. I guess just to round up then, we're sort of broadly in agreement that value strategy and innovation are increasingly important. Is there anything else you think is more important? Have I missed anything? Have I set the wrong theme? The, I like to say when I talk to people about property investing that you need to focus on a motivated seller because if you can solve their problems, they're happy to sell you the property at a good price because their problem is bigger than the price. And normally it's life events that triggers someone's motivation. Getting married, getting divorced, having children, children leaving, nursing care, job change, debt problems, whatever. These are things that have nothing to do with the building. So your best deals come from people who have a problem. And if you can solve their problem, they'll help, they'll work with you, right? Mm -hmm. So the same with innovation, the same with strategy for investing, all the rest of things. Don't fight the market. Don't pretend that it isn't gonna rain in London. It does that occasionally. So have strategies that reflect the reality that you're in. And if you're going to try to innovate and change the world, not only do you have to be 10 times better, you're going to have a lot of abuse, a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, and maybe not very good economic results. And there'll be companies like Google and others who came along long after search engines were in effect invented, and then they dominated the market. So being first isn't even necessarily a good thing. If we learn from Google, you could be 20 something, I think is what they were. And Almost none of those other alternative platforms can people remember now. So if you're going to be in the property game, don't try to be like some whiz bang 
new inventive type person who's doing stuff that no one else does. There's probably a reason no one else is doing it. This is not a market that rewards innovation in a big sense. This is a market that rewards consistent cash flow. So focus on the cash flow. Yeah, it's interesting. And actually, just one more point to add to that. I guess I was looking at innovation and the importance of it from an investor's perspective. And I believe that whether private investors or institutions, there is so much value that can be added to every part of every step of the way, every step of every deal through innovation. But it's about using other people's to solve your problems rather than necessarily creating that innovation. The innovation might be energy efficiency or better you know, insulation qualities or other things like that, where it just makes the, the home, the building with the structure more functional for the users. Mm-hmm. That's innovation. Yeah. Cool. Well, we're nearly out of time. Thank you so much for joining me. And if people want to hear more about what you're up to, follow you, how can they do that? Yeah, so the easiest way is to go to propertyfortress.com. That's propertyfortress.com. Uh, you can also look for John Corey on Facebook. Uh, there's probably a few of you out there. It's a fairly common name, but you'll find me. Uh, I'm sure you can go to Anna's site. She'll have a link to something else anyways. So there's lots of easy ways to find me these days. That's actually one of the innovations that's helped property investors. You can find each other a whole lot easier yeah. because there's so many ways to connect. So take advantage. Awesome. And from my side, I'm, I am about to have a brand new website. So hopefully by the time this episode is released, it'll be up and running. But if not, it'll be not long. And as John said, that all the episode content is up there. You can also find me on LinkedIn, which is my favorite place. And on iTunes and all the normal audio channels. And on the new website, when it arrives, there is a report that I've written based on the repeated seven common investor mistakes that I have seen happening and hurting people and some little ideas, tips and tricks for how to avoid doing them and repeating them yourself. So if you are interested in that, then come and have a look on the website. Hopefully it'll be live by the time this is, but if not, keep checking back and yeah, thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to The Return. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review as this really helps other people to find the podcast.